back to uh, You Had Us At Hello. Uh, we've been gone a while, haven't we, Billy? Yes, we have. And you may think that we took too long to get here. <laughs> you have no idea, however, that we're already in this sort of Groundhog Day loop with this particular podcast. Yeah, we, um, so we recorded it already, just well, so you and, know. And we even got it wrong the first time. Yes, okay, yes. Yeah. So we did, a, we did one version that we had to stop 20 minutes in. Mm-hmm. Then we did Priceless another. Priceless bits were it lost. It was so Priceless. interesting. Yeah. People are never going to hear that stuff No, now. we told the truth about everything there is. I mean. Gone, um, gone. And then we did it again, and we were really pleased with it, and I took it home, and I was a whiz kid on GarageBand, and, and I, then I edited played it, it. I played it on my system, and I, I emailed Tess saying, why does it sound as if we're at the bottom of a well and captive by gnomes? We were, we were definitely gnomes. Um, <laughs> And then after that, I conveniently flew to England. So I took it with me and I gave it to a few people to listen to, to try and figure out if there was something we could do in post. Fix it. Just fix it in post. Fix it in post. Um, We couldn't fix it in post. And we decided because we... Unfixable. Unfixable. And because of some of the feedback that we had from our first one, people seem to really enjoy us. Mm. And we're going to keep our amateur style, just so you know. Yeah. Um, But obviously, like, we want you to be able to hear properly. (laughs) That would help. So, um, and some of the feedback we got was, um, was on iTunes, actually, and one lovely fellow wrote, um, smart, funny people talking about smart, funny things. Sounds like it's recorded in someone's kitchen. Hard to listen to. <laughs> Whoever well, you are, it was recorded in someone's kitchen. And it is recorded in someone's we kitchen. We are in Billy's kitchen. Indeed. Um, so, yeah, and also another little bit of feedback from um, our mutual friend, David Allison, um, which he said... Um, that we need to give spoiler alerts. Yes. I mean, I was like, you know what, really, in this day and age, spoiler alerts? Everybody knows everything. Uh, but, of course. You know, no one has assigned the, uh, like, the time limit, right? There's no established, like, when is a spoiler? Like, there are some people, you tell them, you know, he's dead yeah. during the sixth sense, and they're like, oh, my God. Yeah. You know, but I think really. I think it's like time has passed with Thelma and Louise. I think we can do the ending of that. Yeah. I think the sixth sense we can also talk about. The Sopranos, I think we can talk about the ending of the Sopranos. <laughs> so um, is it a decade, though? I think or it's is a decade. It... Let's say a decade. A decade. <laughs> I think it's a decade before so... on Twitter you can go, oh, my God, I can't believe so we can't discuss any endings from, from before 2007? No. Okay. Except right. we will today. So the yeah. spoiler alert today. So the title of our this week's, this week's, this month, this year's... Whatever it is. Whatever yeah. it is. Episode is Love Hate. Actually. Um, which is, oh, that's just a garbage truck in the background, which hopefully you can hear as well, just it for context of the morning. It gives that amateurish flavour It does, that, that it's Tuesday morning, and that so well. beep you just heard is the fact that I still can't turn off my iMessage on my computer, so that you may get, you know, that might happen too. But again, we're embracing it, Billy. Yes. Uh, so Love Hate, actually, which has sort of come about because... For two reasons, really. The first is that um, Love Actually um, had a little uh, rebirth yes. on British television um, yes. a couple of months ago now, actually. However, yeah. Where for Comet Relief, which is a big charity organisation that Richard Curtis uh, began in 1988, which is a brilliant, brilliant charity where people do crazy comedy things like dance for 24 hours and... It's coming up here. Yes, so this is the connection. So mm-hmm. um, they now have a Red Nose Day US, which yes. is, I think is May 25th. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what they did for this year's one is they decided to do a new Love Actually section, a 10-minute thing about where they all were now and kind of do a funny little video. And I think Hugh Grant does a, another amazing dance in it, etc., etc. So um, it got us thinking about the fact that it's one of those movies that um, really does divide people. It's a room splitter. It's a room splitter. Um, so that's the film side of today's uh, pod. We're going to talk about uh, Love, Hate, Actually. Um, oh, and also, to give even further context, we when the clip was run on uh, the UK television, the UK television, um, <laughs> we someone tweeted us the article, um, which written by a Guardian journalist called Hadley Freeman, and the title of the uh, article was Love, Actually, Killed the Rom-Com. So that, again, was what kind of spurred us on, because we get sent those all the time. And then We just love the fact that people are always sending us articles talking about the death of our beloved genre, which is such a sweet thing to do. Really, bless them, bless them. Mm -hmm. Um, But then further on in the episode, in terms of love, hate, actually, and spoiler alert, we're going to talk about Girls, which came to an end. Yes, um, Girls has ended, sadly. So we are going to do some spoiler alerts, because Mm -hmm. I've finished the season, and a decade has passed. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so just to um, 
Let's read. Let's go to the article of the, that we go. were tweeted, um, and I just want to read you um, a little line from it. Love Actually is officially, legally, morally, and scientifically the worst film ever made. Yes, and that brings up a favorite quote from my household, which is, hyperbole is worse than Hitler. <laughs> and actually, we've stacked um, our microphone on an autobiography of Hitler. So. Yes, not an autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> it's the recent biography. It's, no, it's, I'm going I'm to stick with my autobiography of Hitler. Um, <laughs> he wrote it after he was dead. Right, uh, um, shortly before the Civil War. Shortly right? before yeah, the Civil War. I think that's right. Uh, that's, that's my favorite thing I've ever said. Just <laughs> <that's> amazing. <laughs> Um, so then she goes on to say Hadley Freeman in the article. And let's just say Hadley um, is a very big lover of romantic comedies um, and knows her stuff. She, is, she writes on romantic comedy a lot um, back home in the UK. But obviously that's a big statement to make. She goes on to talk about a theory which she's been honing for 14 years, that love actually killed the rom-com. I'm like, okay, well, we've had lots of theories too, so... Yes, um, and you guys yeah. have heard of some yeah. of these, at least. Um, and she talks about much has been written about the death of the genre. Yeah, you reckon? And she then brings out all the old Heigl and McConaughey things that we've talked about, Billy. Mm. Implausible plots she talks about in Love Actually and insulting the genre and debasing the form. And it all gets very, very um, anti-Love Actually. Um, right, but see, she hasn't been paying attention. No. Because the genre is still alive. Not well, but alive. And there's something inherently fuzzy thinking about her premise, which is that, uh, generally speaking, a hit cannot kill a genre, meaning Love actually did very well at the time and uh, has done even weller since in terms of uh, it's, it's become the holiday rom-com. Uh, but it, it's more that I think instead of killing the messenger, we can look at what the message was, which is at the time Love Actually was released, 2003? I think. Uh, I th- oh, uh, oh, my God. Ni- no, I thought it was 98, wasn't it? No, no, no. It's was it 2000. naughty? Yeah, 2003. Naughty. Yeah, you're right. Sorry, yeah. 2003. Uh, the, the traditional rom-com was saturated and, yeah, had very much started to run its course, which is the subtext of all of our discussions here. Um, but really, Love Actually is more just typical of that, typical of the genre's problems. It's not that that movie... Uh, if anything, it gave it a little extra breath of life before it transformed into something else. Yes. I mean, and I think, like, you know, the thing with Love Actually is so you, so yeah, I mean, you're a, you're a disliker of it No, overall. I'm a schizo. You're a schizo I'm a love-hate on Love Actually. You're a love-hate. Parts hater. of it, I think, are the best of Curtis's work, and parts of it, I think, are the worst. I think I'm, like... Somewhere in between, um, and I think a lot of it has got to do with the fact that uh, it's a Christmas movie as well. So I think that part of the reason why I maybe enjoy it more than why I'm more in the camp of the sort of loving is that I do every you know Christmas time when it came out. I think it came out November the sixth in the UK, so it was definitely a Christmas movie, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it just kind of caught me a bit unawares. But I didn't enjoy it the first time I saw it. Um, I think the I first saw time I saw it, I actively hated it. Okay. Uh, because I was going through a div- I was in the back end of a divorce. <laughs> okay. Which brings up this topic that we we were saying before would be interesting to just touch upon. People don't like to. People are so passionate about their likes and dislikes in terms of all kinds of entertainment, but specifically movies, and people hate to be called on their subjectivity. But in fact, you know the factors that go into. How we? Uh, I did a blog post on this. Billy did uh, a blog. Yes, some time ago, where I, I I cited five factors of filmic subjectivity. I'll recite them for you. One is who you see a movie with, where you see a movie, when you see a movie, what you bring to a movie, and by that I don't mean extra treats, and finally why you see a movie. So, I mean that is great because it. It puts in context the fact that we are all... Context is everything Yeah. for when you go and see a film. I once uh, shouted at a boyfriend, um, developed some crit- critical faculties um, <laughs> after we'd seen... <laughs> and how long did that relationship it, Actually, it did, it did all right, but it was after we'd seen Sin City, and I was in a really bad mood, um, and he made some offhand comment about the, liking the film, and I just launched into a whole kind of, you know rant outside the cinema and said that fatal line um i also sort of saw things like lost in translation when i was like totally um you know in 
feeling like I needed to be saved by someone, maybe a little bit. Hmm. Um, uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind I saw and absolutely hated it. And I know it's a great movie, but I that whole year for me when it came out, I was I was just not really feeling particularly open to that kind of sort of. Well, and, and you, Tess Morris, yes, the me, Tess Morris, made the point uh, specific to rom coms, which mm. is we are especially defensive about our feelings for romantic comedy because the romantic comedy is a vehicle for expressing supposedly truths about the way relationships and love and romance work in the world. And we, of course, have our own completely subjective interpretations of how it should be. Well, we so. feel represented on screen, yeah. um, and, and, I, and I wonder whether whether that is, um, you know, p- particularly in romantic comedies. You know, I mean, obviously, we <clears> always <throat> feel represented on screen in in, in, on, in various levels. But I think in romantic comedy, it it triggers this thing of like, oh, I'd never do that, or oh, they, you know, that would never happen, or whatever it is that it triggers in somebody. Um, and we feel like they're saying something about our own romantic existence. Um, so if you're in the wrong mood, or you're in a, you know, like a, same with like we, when we talked about in the first podcast with, with La La Land, you know, like if you saw it when you were heartbroken, it would, it could send you either way. Right. Um, and I think with Love Actually, it definitely has, um, by the way, I'm going to try and say actually as many times as possible, because when Please. I listened back to our last episode, mm-hmm. I said actually so many times and it really made me laugh. But it always sounds good in a British accent. Actually, yeah. yeah. Um, I think that there is. I think it could, it could. I can see how it could make you incredibly angry. Love actually as a film. Right. Well, when I said before that I saw it in the throes of <laughs> post-divorce, it, it meant that I sat there weeping. Of course, <laughs> right. It, it's not that it didn't affect me emotionally. It's just that the theme, love is all around, struck me at that moment as so unbelievably facile that my reaction to love is all around was basically fuck you asshole. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> It's easy for you to say, Mr. Well, Curtis. I did the same with, like, Eternal Sunshine. I was like, you want to fucking erase me? Yeah. Fuck you. Yeah. Like, you're not erasing me. I am part of your tapestry of romantic life, you know? When you get drunk, honey. Why don't you get drunk with me no more? In, in relation to the uh, the rom com, Love Actually Killed the Rom Com in from two thousand and three, um, just not true anyway. Um, but I'm going to prove in a court of law um, now rom com law. Rom com yes. law. These are the films that have come out since two thousand and three. Well, in the same era, let's just put yes. it that way. Yes. Okay. Five hundred days of summer. Something's got to give. Thirteen on thir- thirteen going on thirty. Fifty first dates. Can you read my writing? Sunshine. Tony Sanders' spotless mind. Her. Forty-year-old uh, virgin, knocked up, lost in translation, crazy, stupid love, enough said, silver lining playbook, forgetting Sarah Marshall, uh, obvious child, the proposal. Um, Can you read that the, one? The kids are all right. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, kind of a romantic comedy. Right. Crazy, you said it's crazy, yeah, stupid and love, and silver lining playbook. There you go, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The tons of them. There are. If I was, what's you know, if I was uh, in the Good Wife, if I was Saint Alicia, and I went in and said, I'm just going to give you know your honour. Right. Here are here are here are yes. some movies that prove that love actually did not kill it. Mm-hmm. Um, we would win. I would win. Dismissed. Case dismissed. I think what she was trying to get at, and the thing that we often discuss, is that what's changed is the culture, mm. and it's, it's a fundamental shift. Um, that by the time we got past the turn of the century. It was clear that these so-called courtship stories were not going to function the same way for most people seeing these movies because marriage is no longer the be-all and end-all of romantic relationships. Uh, So much has changed in the workplace, in politics, in uh, gender understanding, gender roles. Uh, It's just not the same ballgame anymore. So it's more that because the studios got caught in codifying a certain kind of romantic comedy and cookie-cuttering them out, which we discussed in our last cast, uh, the culture kind of went, eh, you know, that's not for us. So it's really more that the romantic comedy has had to kind of stealth-bomb its way back into the mainstream in sort of like cleverly disguised movie like Silver Linings Playbook, which was not even sold as a romantic comedy, no. but absolutely is. And there are very disparate uh, reactions to it on each side of the planet. Yeah, I mean, I feel like more Americans maybe love it than British people sometimes. Why is that? Um, <laughs> I think just as I love American romantic comedies because it's, you know, alien to me and it's not my world... Um, maybe that is sort of part of the American sort of thing with, you know, 
they love Bridget Jones, you know. I mean, they love Richard Curtis in general, which I think is fantastic, you know. Um, but I think that that also, they, I think they enjoy the relief of it not being about their own kind of world. This mysterious they she's referring to is actually me. Yes, yeah, sorry, you, you're an American. very personally. Yes. Yeah. Um, but then it's funny when I rewatched it for the purpose of this and, and seeing just how it, it did feel incredibly dated, but that's not... Curtis's fault. He didn't know that we, you know, that Trump was going to win the election, and actually, Billy Bob Thornton's character in, in it is kind of a little bit close to the bone now. You yeah, know, uh, pun yeah. intended. George, we miss you. Yeah. So um, that was quite interesting to watch this time around to see um, just how. Also, I mean, England is equally fucked at the moment. You know, we don't have some great, um, inspiring politician leading us into the future. So um, There's also something kind of funny about the British first message of love actually after Brexit. <laughs> I know! <laughs> it's kind of, you look at it now and go, hmm, yeah. interesting. And I wonder whether... Hi, Tabitha! That's Tabitha. That's Tabby. I wonder... I mean, that's in some ways you want it. The timeless theme of love actually is obviously, you know, this kind of big hope and love is all around and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but there is something about watching it now that feels utterly like it's a dream world, you yeah. know. But then maybe, you know, that's what some people still need, obviously, in their want to watch. So I've got no issue with that on that level because yeah, you we, can't help it that the world has <clears throat> ended into total carnage. We won't knock hope. I'm never knocking hope. <laughs> So here's the thing about that movie that makes it a room splitter for me as a fan of romantic comedy. Yes. Is Richard Curtis, for years previous, I had always exalted as being like one of the best in the contemporary world for romantic comedy. And, um, you know, the first film, Four Weddings, uh, technically, the tall guy came before that. Over here, it made barely a ripple. So the, the first big hit. Four weddings. For us, and for someone like me, it seemed a throwback to the genteel, sophisticated rom-coms of the golden era. But it had this irreverence that made it kind of hip and contemporary. And I liken it to the, the trajectory of Curtis, like, that was the first album of a really cool band, and you went running around telling everybody, oh, you've got to see this Four Weddings, and it's so great, and And Notting Hill was kind of the follow-up second album that had, like, even better stuff in it and, and, and really neat things that made you think, yeah, this is really one of the great talents. Love Actually is that third sellout album where everybody else <laughs> all over the world says, oh, yeah, yeah, Richard Curtis, yeah, he's great. And you're like, hey, I was an early adopter. And meanwhile, it's got all these terrible hit singles on it, you know, these things that you think are sort of a degradation of what you liked about the band, and yet somehow everyone else is onto it and singing them forever. So uh, that's that's my problem with Love Actually in that it, it shows good things and bad things in equal measure. You like the Christmas thing. You know, I... Look, the Christmas thing, I'm, I'm actually... Um, I'm writing a Christmas movie at the moment that you did a brilliant consultation for me on. Thank um, you. Called Secret Santa, um, which I've been writing for fucking years. Um, and I'm... I've gone back to it now, and um, and I'm always really struck when I when I go back to it that I realise the kind of the rules of the Christmas movie and how often you get away with a lot more in a Christmas movie simply because of the line, but it's Christmas. I think even Christmas. Alan Rickman's character says it to Laura Linney in Love Actually. It excuses know. a multitude of sins. Yeah, I'm gonna you know I'm gonna do this crazy thing because it's Christmas, and I, and I feel vulnerable and emotional because it's Christmas, so I feel angry because it's Christmas. Well, whatever it is, you, you are driven by this crazy season. So there's something about the Christmasness of Love Actually that makes me... It has a place in, in, in the canon for me on that, on that level. Um, but that said... <laughs> well, it also it excuses a lot of screenwriting errors exactly. or excesses. And, that... and what I would say about Love Actually, when me and you really geek out, is that I think it defies analysis as a romantic comedy structurally. Um, I think thematically it's totally a romantic comedy, but I would argue that um, we can't really analyse it like we would other movies of that genre. Right. As an ensemble movie, it's got, what is it, nine? Nine it's, stories? It's, how, it's, it's way too many. Oh, sorry, my phone is now ringing. Decline. Ooh. But what if it's that call, Tess? 
I don't know how I did I did it. Oh my god, this is like awful. It might have been that call. It might have been the one. So but, what but was it's I? Ran- Hollywood. It's Hollywood on the line. Hollywood can wait. Okay, Billy. Sorry. So what was I? Uh, we were talking about the, the different storylines in the back. Yes. And the fact that yes, you can't analyze the film as a whole no. structurally as you would a traditional rom com, but the little stories yes have their arcs. Some of them really do conform to rom-com form. It's just they're all splayed out in, you know, its own kind of rhythm. And Yeah, and they're all, um, you know, they're, they're vignettes of people's lives. Um, and um, some of them some of them work, some of them don't, you know. Um, I, well, I, to me, it's like silly versus substantial. Okay. Okay, you've How got so? something, well, uh, substantial would be the Emma Thompson and Alan Rickman storyline. And even that one is flawed because it has no resolution whatsoever, which mm. is disappointing. But then you've got the uh, the British guy. Uh, Martin Freeman. Well, no, no. The, Martin Freeman and uh, I actually looked up the name of Joanna Page. Well done. You looked up, and Billy hates yes. it when he doesn't remember When I remember can't a remember a name. name or get it wrong. Uh, no, that, that to me is silly good in that it's simple and it's just a great gag and it, and it works. No, I'm, I'm, when I say simple, I mean things like uh, Chris Marshall as the, no. the, the bloke <laughs> who ends up with ski bunnies who are models in America. You know, that that's silly. Yeah. And then you've got a Hugh and Martine, which is kind of okay. Okay, let's say the prime minister and the secretary. Yeah, but then the worst version of that to me is Colin Firth and the Portuguese maid, whose name is Lucia Moniz. But Billy, like she jumps naked into the water for his pages for his work. Yes, yeah, and no. then in spite of the fact that she doesn't speak his language, no. accepts his marriage proposal because evidently in this movie, women who work for powerful men always love them and must marry them. Yes, I mean, it gets a lot of um, shit for its... um, Sexist? Sexist thing. But what I would say is that there are way more sexist films than uh, Love Actually, and a lot of them, like, for a start, let's talk about the Atomic Blonde trailer that just looks like my worst sexist nightmare. Oh, she's got suspenders on, but she's got a gun. Oh, there's a lesbian (laughs) scene. It's like, fucking hell. Anyway... Sidebar. The point is, is that I, I appreciate that its representation of women is, is sometimes a little off kilter, but I don't think, I think its heart is in the right place. Its heart's in the right place, but I will support the feminist critique of Love Actually. I, well, I will it, support you supporting the feminist <laughs> critique because I am a feminist, as are you. And meanwhile, Bill Nye is just brilliant. You see, um, I find him silly. See, and as a, as a man, mm. I, I totally relate to that character. And to me, silly, yes. Yeah. But kind of wonderful. I find him silly. I actually also find the Martin Freeman stuff a bit silly. But I get it. It works as a little standalone sort of porn film gag. So what's interesting, though, is uh, to me, in terms of all of these storylines, Love Actually is a testament to the theory that somebody, and I don't know who, <laughs> uh, it put out in screenwriting circles, that really all you need to make a quote-unquote great movie is three or four great moments Things that <clears throat> really stay in the memory. And that love actually has in spades. You've got Laura Linney's little dance when she thinks she's going to get lucky. Hugh Grant's dance. Hugh Grant's amazing dance. You've got Emma and Joni Mitchell, you know, in that wonderful scene for her by the bed. Uh, so if you just look at the great moments, it's a memorable film. Yeah, and, you know, you were saying as well that there's stuff that got cut from it in the deleted scenes. <clears throat> yeah, um, and in the extras, when you look on the disc, there's a wonderful scene between a headmistress who features very briefly in the film and then as uh, so Curtis So it's, it's Anne Reid and Frances Delator, and, I mean, they are big-hitting, amazing British actresses, just so you, I mean, I love those two. Yeah, so. and they've got this wonderful scene which shows sort of their, uh, their great love relationship, a lesbian uh, a, a, a relationship in the movie, and it's a shame that it wasn't used because it's really quite touching and it's done uh, gracefully and with the usual Curtis humor that kind of you know is both sentimental and then sends itself up for being so mushy I mean and it's interesting that this is when you know when you watch Richard Curtis talking about it in the deleted scenes I mean it's quite you know he, he clearly missed the fact that he didn't get to include it um and when we wa- we watched them before for the purpose of the podcast, and we were watching them, and they're very touching, you know. It's it's, and you can see, oh, that would have given that would have been a good, less silly, you know, moment. And Emma Thompson does a nice speech at the school about uh, Anne Reed about uh, Frances Delatour, who's died, who's Anne Reed's girlfriend. Um, so it's I it's in, I'm always fascinated by the things that got left out, that would have made it maybe for some people slightly more 
you know, substantial. grounded. Yeah, substantial, yeah. 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 So yeah. One, one thing that we should touch on is the, uh, the roles of the romantic heroes and heroines. And love, actually, you could say... It, I'm not going to, you know, go into this last or best or anything like that. It's a good example of what Curtis established as the norm for romantic comedy heroes in the day, which was this kind of feminized male. Like the gender reversal in Notting Hill is Hughes the girl, yeah. essentially, and Julia Roberts is the guy. This is something, Curtis, if you look at all the material, it kind of runs through it. And uh, you you were saying that this speaks to something you did in Man Up. Yeah, I mean, I think when I think about Hugh Grant as Mark, he was he was so representative when I was growing up of the kind of, um, you know, the foppish, awkward... Um, he was kind of, I suppose, on some levels, our little kind of Woody Allen man, you know, um, subverted or, or however you want to kind of view him. But um, so when I came to write Man Up, and I still continue to try and do it now, I try and write my own female version of that on some levels because I don't want to write a a cookie cutter female character who's got one flaw um, mm-hmm. and is not a not a big old mess herself, you know what I mean? Um, and I like her to feel masculine on some levels. Um, as a, you know, I'm quite a, I'm a girl who has quite a lot of male energy on some levels, so I kind of think that's an interesting dynamic to put on screen as well. Um, so I'm kind of, when I watch Hugh Grant now, I, especially, in, I mean, in all of the Curtis movies, I think he's brilliant. I actually think he's a very underrated actor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I Agreed. recently watched Florence Foster Jenkins, and he is brilliant mm. in it. Um it's hard to do that role, and everyone thinks, oh, he's just like that in real life, but to actually do that on screen is a whole different sort of ball game. Indeed. Um, so, yeah, so I'm, I'm really interested in how we've gone from, you know, if we're going to talk about that it's killed that rom-com, and, but we're going to say, no, it's evolved the characters and the people that we now watch on screen, because you wouldn't necessarily, well, we definitely wouldn't watch a Hugh Grant character on screen now. Yeah, I think that it's it's similar to the way it is with politics uh, that it swings it swings the other way. Meaning, if you've got this feminized male, it stands to reason that what would follow it would be a more male male, which is well, what we ended up with. With yeah, and in terms of the where we've come to now, I mean, well, we've come totally full circle. But if we're going to say from Hugh Grant to Seth Rogen, really, aren't we? In Notting Hill, we actually have a precursor of the Seth Rogen archetype, which is Spike. Yes. And is it Reese? Reese Evans. Reese Reese Evans. Easy for you to say. Yeah. Uh, he, there he is. He's the British, that's your British Seth Rogen character Correct. right there. And then, in a sense, he evolves into the uh, Chris Marshall character in Love Actually. That's it's very the, true, yeah. It's the same kind of, you know, uh, dim bulb bloke who's a slacker. You yeah. Know? And, and, and so what we get in America, obviously, we're, we're, we're going around it, is the Judd Apatow male. Yeah, so we've come Curtis... To Apatow, yes. essentially. Yes. And I think that Apatow, consciously or not, is reacting to that more traditional, conventional uh, Cary Grant being the uber romantic lead. And he's saying now it's now, you know, that the culture has changed. The old guard is bewildered by all this. And the formulaic career girl gets alpha guy movie is dying. He gets in there and says, let me take this genre and really look at a contemporary male point of view. So he, this kind of Judd Apatow juggernaut hijacks the genre with characters like Steve Carell in uh, 40-Year-Old Virgin, Seth Rogen in uh, Knocked Up, and all the other usual suspects that started in Freaks and Geeks. Yeah, I mean... Your favorite. Yeah, I mean, Freaks and Geeks was like, oh, my God, I missed that show so much. It was only on, I mean, 17 episodes, I think, and mm-hmm. then it got canned. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's him and Paul Feig. That was their, you know their creation um and very much the boys in that the the male characters in that and also the female characters are a precursor to the bridesmaids that we ended up with you know um Mm. a few years back when you think about um lindsay and freaks and geeks um so they were all kind of uh, seth rogan in that who hasn't got the biggest role in freaks and geeks but he's definitely the kind of schlubby kind of um slightly um grumpy kind of and you got jason siegel you got jason right? siegel yeah. who's obsessed with led zeppelin or, yeah um <laughs> and um or drumming anyway um and um it's a lovely show that that manages to be about 
just very simple things, but at the same time, huge romantic arcs for all the characters because that's what happens when you're at high school. I mean, you're just falling in and out of love and having existential angst. I'm still doing that, um, age 40. So that's where I think we kind of can chart it from um, because all of those people that he worked with, you know, he is the comedy master Apatow in terms of Mm -hmm. finding that talent and Mm -hmm. then honing that talent and then giving them their own shows talent. (laughs) So so the sensibility that emerges from Apatow's uh, kind of contemporary male anti-hero for romantic comedy is this uh, slacker schlub. And the idea is it really is the uber male romantic comedy because the schlub gets the girl. And not only does he get the girl, he gets Catherine Heigl in Knocked Up, which is the most, as we've talked about in many times. Defies you know, credibility defies, on and so also, many levels. But also just, I think it was such clever casting because she was the rom-com queen, mm-hmm. you know, for quite some time. And then they put her in a rom-com and she's great in it, you know. she uh, She's very funny in it. And, and you said the underlying sensibility is sort of like, I'll never be Hugh Grant, but now... A schlub like me can yeah. get Catherine Heigl. Exactly. So, yeah. And, you know, I, I think that he then said to himself, I don't know what happened. I mean, I'm not inside Judd Apatow's mind, um, which would be weird if I was. But I would love to know, like, the evolution of kind of how... Being Judd Apatow. Being that would Judd be the Rudd. That would be our version of uh, Malkovich. Malkovich. Do you know what? And it would be me, like... Like wearing a beard, <laughs> right? And and like being having a ton of work, like too much work. I don't know what to do with it, and I go slightly crazy, right? And I shave my beard off. Mm-hmm. It'd be a great film, being Judd Apatow, we'll get to work starring Tess yeah. Morris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great idea. Well, I think it's more that he was he's always been a connoisseur of comedy. Yes. And so what he's looking at, in other words, a lot of the, it's it's always so easy for us to, you know, play academic and look back at these things and say, well, this happened because of this and this and this. And I don't think it's it's really conscious on his part. He was just going, who's funny? Who's funny, yeah. And and once he had gotten who's funny out of this sort of Preston Sturges-like company of men, uh, he looked around and he looked past Seth Rogen and Steve Carell and Adam Sandler and all those guys to who's funny now, and that turned out to be women. Yeah. So Who Kristen knew? Wh- who knew? Who knew that women could be... Remember when that was actually an issue? Actually a thing. Can women be funny? Fucking hell. Yeah. I th- so yeah. right in the teeth of that, he goes, he finds Kristen Wiig, And he goes, you're funny. Um, How about let's do a movie? So the development of Bridesmaids, which I was a part of. You were? I worked at Universal on that project for something like three and a half years and close to 17 drafts. Wow. Which is why I cracked up when in interviews... Uh, Kristen Wiig and uh, Annie Mumolo, her partner, kept saying, we wrote it in four days. Because I would go, yeah, and the first draft read like that. (laughs) Exactly, yes. Uh, And bless their hearts, and and Judd Apatow for giving them the room to develop it. It went through incredible amounts of changes and ended up being the sort of modern-day classic that put to rest that question. Women can be funny, yes. And Bridesmaids as well, what's when you look, you know, if we're just going to keep tracking it from, you know, Hugh Grant, Seth Rogen to Kristen Wiig, you know, when you first meet Kristen Wiig, she is, you know, similar to Four Weddings and a Funeral, you know, she's waking up in bed with someone, she is trying to, you know, escape and get out, really. she's got all her makeup on, you know, there's, there's lots of kind of... It's a woman now doing it, staying right. over and doing whatever. I mean, admittedly, I know he's just late in, in Four Weddings, but it's still the kind of idea yeah, that, yeah. that, like, we meet her in this slightly frenetic, where the, what the fuck am I doing situation. Oh, yes, the hero used to be the guy who exactly. was sneaking out on the girl. That yes. he, right, so yeah. there you go. For you, Tess Bridesmaids was actually instrumental. It was, because, as you've just said, because of the women are funny sort of thing that started to happen in, in the world... Um, I'd written Man Up and it had landed on my producer Nara Park's desk just after she'd been to a screening of Bridesmaids. So she came out of Bridesmaids, fired up to find, you know, a really female-led romantic comedy. Get me one of those! Get me one of those! And then conveniently, (laughs) there it was, on her desk. Um, So that was definitely my tiny bit of luck that I had with it. Um, And it also just allowed us people had seen people were now oh bridesmaids and and the heat and various you know films that kind of like showed women being you know not neat and tidy on screen which meant for us for nancy for man up we were allowed to make her you know not always that likable which Mm. is always great you Mm -hmm. know um because the consistent note that you get on female characters is always you know i don't like she's not likable enough and i'm like well you know what deal with it (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, so that was definitely a tipping point for me and I think just for the whole world in general. Um, maybe now we've come 
even further ahead now because there seems to be no limits to what um, we can see women doing on screen, which is fantastic. You know, I've, I think... And, and you and I have our differences in how we define uh, bridesmaids because I don't see it as being traditional, uh, as a romantic comedy in the traditional sense because the heterosexual romantic relationship is a subplot in that Yeah, movie. I mean, but, but you're wrong. You, right, but I, you have proven me wrong <laughs> because you make the point that it's actually a female bromance. Yeah, it's, it's exactly, it's, I don't know, yeah, fromance. We won't say if homance, we're gonna call we? no. No, home, no, maybe not homance, but I like it. <laughs> Um, if you're going to call Knocked Up and Forty Year and all those rom-coms, which they, which they are, mm-hmm. then um, you have to call uh, Bridesmaids it as well because you've got... It's like Muriel's Wedding, you know? The, the central romance is between two women. Sideways right. is technically a romantic comedy between, you know, Dramati and Thomas Hayden Church, you know? Uh, and all of the subplot stuff is... Rom-com stuff is incredibly important. But for me, if there's a... Cent- if it's a will-they-won't-they they, in terms mm-hmm. of a, a love of a form... Right. Um, and I think Bridesmaids does that. I mean, and like you say, it's also a wedding movie, of course. Um, but I, yeah, I think that you're wrong, and I'm right, basically. I'm right. Well, in the interest of saying we can both be wrong <laughs> and right simultaneously, <laughs> I'm going to say it's a breath mint and a candy mint. Okay. That we've got both a romantic comedy there, whether it's a romantic or romantic comedy, uh, <laughs> and it's a great send up of the wedding genre. Because I'm right. sorry, Maya Rudolph kneeling in the street in her bridal dress and pooping in in the middle of the city is the most definitive image to put an end to the wedding rom-com yes. or the wedding movie as and I can ever think of. the puking, the vomiting oh, in, yeah. the, in, Absolutely. The, in the wedding dress shop. I mean, that scene, the vomiting scene, is one of... I mean, I love, I love both those scenes. I love all of it. I, I, there's so many set pieces in that movie that, and again, like you were talking about earlier, there is you know, between five to ten moments in that film that you remember for a very long time afterwards. And that is the ultimate test of of a romantic comedy, I think. And the movie Um, kind of heralds what we could refer to as revenge of the women. talk about what we talk about when we talk about women now in in leading ladies we've apatow again has then then brought us girls you know and um, in between amy schumer right? and in between amy schumer yeah. well actually amy schumer was girls, girls already started launched, hadn't it yeah but, but i'm it, saying on screen yes on yeah. screen yeah so thanks, so yeah he thanks. goes for lena dunham which is uh, when, when you think about it, it it's great here's an example of a producer really using his power for the powers of good right yes. because her little movie, Tiny Furniture, was truly small in mm-hmm. terms of its financial effect, box office. He saw the talent, he took a flyer, he went, Lena, this is yours, which is kind of amazing. And the re- it's, well, let's, well, should we talk about girls? It's a good, yeah. we segued seamlessly into that. Billy. Bravo. Um, so, love, hate, actually, girls. <laughs> I have a love, I have a love hate relationship with mm-hmm. the show. Um, yeah. Ultimately, I love it. Um, I but but in talking and speaking of our how you your mood that you see something in. Um, when I first watched Girls, I was in my so how, how long? What is it? Six years old now? Seven mm-hmm. years old? Now? Okay, so I was sort of thirty three, thirty four, and I am a Sex and the City girl. I have loved that show and will defend that show to the hilt. So when Girls came along, I felt very disjointed from it I felt like it wasn't my people I was watching and you were being protective of sex in the city I was being very protective comparing the two going this is better or it's a very strange phenomenon when people do that it's like when people sort of compared like you know Breaking Bad to the Sopranos and you were like but there is no Breaking Bad without the Sopranos there is no Walter White without Tony so as in there is no Lena Dunham you know with without Carrie without you know that and and I'm sure Lena Lena I always get it wrong would would say that herself you know I've never heard her say that she doesn't like sex in the city yeah Uh, maybe she hates it um she'll literally do a post now saying sex city is a part part of shit there are two blithering idiots saying (laughs) that I like sex in the city um but yes so when I watched girls for the first I watched the first season and I Mm. thought Okay, yeah, I, I get it. It's important. I understand she's she's clearly a fantastic writer. 
Um, then I watched the second season and gave up because I said, you know what, this is not for me. I I don't know any of these people. I don't I don't understand it. I I feel I feel angry about the fact that I'm not living that life. Possibly again, going back to mood and how you are when you see something. Mm-hmm. And then what was interesting is what happened to me is that then I left. So then I didn't watch it from season two. And then after the election, after uh, Trump. And actually in line, actually, 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 in line with the New Yorker article you sent me, which I read after I'd finished Girls, and there's a New Yorker piece where she talks about how after the election she said, you know what, I'm not going to put... Um, it was, I can't remember the name of the, the journalist, but she was basically saying, I'm, I'm not going to put any constraints on what I do and I don't watch anymore and I'm not going to be like, oh, you shouldn't watch that, just try and be a bit more open to stuff um, mm. because the world is so terrible. And she started to watch Girls, and I kind of did exactly the same thing. I thought... I need to engage in this show and understand it. And even if I get to the end of it and I don't like it still, I can at least understand. And I will say that the uh, watching girls in the context of Trump is there's no stretch here because the central romance in girls is between Hannah and Hannah. It's a, <laughs> it's, it's a study of narcissism, you know, so, yeah. I mean, and, and certainly in the age of Trump, there's a certain relevance that I don't even think we saw coming uh, after the fact. It's, it's writ large. I mean, I, I think it's, I think she is a truly, br- I mean, and Jenny Connor, I think particularly um, in terms of, um, I don't know. I, I hear that that is their their teamwork is really really makes the show in terms of the structure and yeah. the direction and the general world of it. Um, I there were some episodes that I love so much. Other episodes that I'm kind of like, but all of them don't waste a single minute of screen time. All of them adhere to very very brilliant um, structural rules. Oh yeah. Um, they all. I'm fascinated by the narcissism of the show and I'm fascinated by the fact that in the last series they really addressed that and she became less narcissistic. Um, Right, finally. Although what's interesting to me is uh, the usual confusion between writers and their characters. Uh, It reminded me a lot of the Woody Allen phenomenon and there's many other famous cases of this. It seems as though the show was being attacked initially by people who seem to think that Lena... Dunham was Hannah, and that she was actually advocating this as a way of life, where I really think there's a very conscious attempt to look at this culture of narcissism. I mean, all the characters in that show, the loves of their lives are themselves, essentially. 100%. So, I mean, that's kind of what it's about. And yet, it's totally a rom-com. That's a TV... I mean, it never gets called that. You know, all the Mm -hmm. shows like Catastrophe and You're the Worst, the romantic These are all serial romantic comedies in TV form. And the way... And again, via the female friendships as well as the male friendships, um, I... I actually, when I finished it, I um, I, had, I had one note. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I just have one note. Excuse me. Note. Pardon me. My yes. one note was that I felt that um, it's just a garbage truck going past for us. No metaphorical significance. No. Yeah. Bye bye garbage truck. It's, oh, it's moving very fast. Bye. Okay. Bye. My one note was that I actually... Stop saying actually. I thought that the... Um, I would have reversed the end of the last three episodes. I, for me, the hmm. scene in the diner with her and Adam... Yeah. ..was everything I wanted in a... We have, we have grown up. We have come full circle as a show, as people. Um, I didn't really need in the future episodes the sort of them being in a bathroom again as girls and figuring mm. out they, they mm. didn't like each other. Mm. I didn't really need even... I understand, I totally know there will be decisions of why they did that and they wanted to show her having the baby and that kind of sort of stuff, but I felt like they could have done that still and reversed it and had Adam trying to be with her with the baby. But then they also made a decision, I suppose, to make it more about her and Marnie's relationship. So I, I do understand that, but the last three to me felt like a hodgepodge of of various sort of strands and I felt like there was a more cohesive way and more um for me I just that diner scene killed me like she sat there listening to him saying oh you know we should probably get married and we should probably do this and her face her acting in that scene is unbelievable so but I really got to the end of it and felt that it's a such an important show um there's things about it I, I understand why people 
I mean, your point about them sort of, is sort of, I suppose, just sort of talking about the fact that she, it's not her. She's a character. Mm-hmm. And she's trying to do a job and create a series of a show, of a, you know, about people and give you, you know, Ray had a great journey in the end. Um, but I think, I think the truth that she gets to, which I think is conscious, ultimately, what my takeaway from the series is, in terms of the genre, is we have finally shifted the balance. It used to be that romantic comedy was about finding the mate. And often the road to finding the mate was self-actualization. This, like, you finally learn to love yourself and thus you can love somebody else. In the era of girls, what we're seeing is the balance has shifted, whereas the mate is almost incidental and can be part of the process of self-actualization. Meaning, actually, actually, in the end, that's the most important thing, is who you are and whether you can be with yourself. I know. Gosh, it's true. I mean, it's sobering, sobering. I mean, I think and then what I would like to think is that once you've got to that point, then you can figure out how to be with someone else. One would think. I would like yes. to think that Hannah has then discovered I can do this. And, and, and you know, I think she's now lecturing somewhere in Connecticut. <laughs> that could be. But it's, a, you know, it's, it's, it's the triumph of feminism on that level. It right? really is. And, and I really felt as well that, I mean, I'm, I'm much older than the characters, so I don't have the, the, friendship stuff with, the friendship stuff within the episodes. I'm so beyond that now. And I, and I, I, as, in, as in I love all my female friends and I, ah. don't, I, I know who they are and I right. want them in my life. Um, but, I, but we've all been there in terms of having those relationships, you know, um, that you have to decide, you know, when you're in your 20s, you, you know, am I in this or am I out of this? Um, and I think that I really feel like they do all break up, really. Even, even Mar- Marnie and her, I mean, Jessa, they, she has the nice scene with Jessa at the party, but they definitely aren't saying we're going to be friends' friends. They just sort of dance and have a good time. Well, and they acknowledge the importance of who they are to each yeah. other. Yeah, yeah. And, you know... Which is very kind of a- Annie Hall. Very like, Annie Hall. Yeah. yeah, I mean, in some ways... I want, I mean, I wish they were doing like a spin off shows about all of them because I'd like to know what's going to happen. And, but then she is doing a great show about. I'm seeing a legion of male listeners running, screaming into the night. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but it'd be great, like, Marnie, you know, I'd love to know if Marnie's going to actually be a lawyer. And that's what she right. says at the end. Sure. She'd be a or great she, fucking lawyer. Or whether she's out of that relationship overnight and exactly. God knows where yeah. her career goes. But yeah. But they, you know, I think it's a show that, um, I love its divisiveness as well. I think it's a healthy thing. And you're, mm-hmm. you know, you're a man. I'm a, well, I'm not going to say how old you are, Billy, but you know, I'm 40, you're a man. You know, we both, I'm eternally young. I yes. think it's really interesting that we, that, that we both love that show in the way, in the same yeah. similar kind of ways, sure. really. Well, because beyond gender, the ability of that show, and it's not, as you mentioned, Lena Dunham, a number of other writers, including Sarah Hayward, one of the producers who was a former student of mine. Oh, she's great. I will say for the record, uh, is that the show really is so adept at showing how we function in relationships, period. The power dynamics of relationship. How in scene after scene, episode after episode, what you're watching is people with their own agendas colliding with other people with their own agendas and how they bargain, seduce, negotiate, or fight their way into power. And let's also say everybody should have an Elijah in their life. (laughs) I mean... Sure. I... Andrew Reynolds... Yeah. I just He's want to hang out with him yes. all the fucking time. Mm-hmm. And I feel like everyone should be allowed that version of, you know, a version of him in their lives. And not, not even just men and women should have an Elijah. It's very important. I'll drink to that. Yes. Yes. So, full circle. What were you pointing at? Billy's pointing at something on our list that I haven't said. Well, just that you, you, you went from girls to the new season of a girls-esque oh, show. Oh, well, that's, yes. I mean, which I think we'll do definitely do a pod on when it's, when it's on. Um, I just kind of was trying to sort of bring it even further circle in term Further circle? I can't speak today. Further circles? Further circles today. Actually. Actually circles today to do with Broad City, which is, again, mm. the far more... A, a bigger version of Girls on some level. Obviously, mm-hmm. it's it's way... It's, it's definitely just a full-on comedy, um, but also about female friendship. And I think that they took something that was... Um, they, they've really run with the ball in terms of women who are 
incredibly dysfunctional in a brilliant, yeah. brilliant way. Um, and I want to hang out with them all the time. Um, so I'm excited again. Like now, girls has finished. We've still got Broad City. Right. They, I think it's gone in July. Dysfun- yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I think <clears throat> that um, Gillian Ross. I can't pronounce her surname. Um, Jenny Slate and Gillian Rospierre. I think she's Ross. I'm not. It's a French surname. She did Obvious Child. They've got a new show for Netflix. Okay. It's a kind of girl road trip sort of oh, thing. Oh yeah, Jenny Slater. Uh, with Jenny Slate, yeah. Oh. And um, did I say Slate or Slater? We got what names wrong again? Oh, it doesn't matter at this point. It doesn't matter. Who cares? Yeah, because we've got garbage trucks. We got garbage trucks. Going in the background. So we have actually gone actually gone through uh, something like 17, 18 years of romantic comedy in one sitting, in under an hour, to follow this progression of what's become of the romantic hero and the romantic heroines and where the genders are today. And it leads us to a preview of our next episode. In which preview! We'll have, we may have a special guest. Yeah, so every pod we're going to talk about, Craig is going to come on, <laughs> right. Craig Mason, and then every Waiting one he, for Craig. Waiting for we're, Craig. Yeah. Um, but we emailed Craig to try and get him on this one, which was the last one that we recorded that we fucked up that we're re-recording for you now. Yes. Um, and he wasn't around, but then we took the opportunity to say to him, what would you like to talk about if you came on? Um, what film would you like to discuss? Craig, very rightly, I, I respect this. And we're talking about Craig Mason, oh, sorry, Mason, by the way, who with John August uh, runs a very popular podcast. It's brilliant. Scriptos, and is, by the way, one of the, you know, closers in, in studio land who gets paid inordinate amounts of money to come in for a week and fix all the problems. He's a closer. He's a closer. So, Craig... Um, when I asked him what movies he might want to discuss, said, I don't like to talk about movies that I don't like, which I thought, wow. He's brilliant like wow. that. You will see on Twitter that he will, he's a positive, open person. If he doesn't like something, you're not going to hear about it. And I think that is a great mantra in terms of going back to actually, actually, actually coming full circle now mm-hmm. in terms of the mood that you see something in. Don't say whether you... If you love it, say you love it. If you hate it, maybe watch it again in a different mood. If you still hate it, you don't have to tell everybody anyway. Or at least tell us in a few years. Yeah. So Craig uh, would like to discuss Her, which is certainly one of my favorite uh, contemporary rom-coms. And to me, it seems to open up this area of romantic comedies that are not. Meaning movies that do not seem to resemble what they are and have taken very unconventional routes to get at things about love and romance. Well, I am excited about talking about her because I've only seen it once, and I have to say I did not think that it was a romantic comedy. Um, mm. and I, but, you, but no, it clearly it learn. is. No, clearly it is. So I'm going to rewatch it, and then we're going to force Craig back in here. And now there's no writer strike. Ah! We can all write it, Craig. Kaleo Frabjuste. We should say that we are recording this on the morning after. We are. So we're smoking happily. Yeah. It was good for us. I am really stoned. <laughs> <laughs> we do have a deal, is the point. We have and a deal. That's really quite. We marvelous. live to write another day. Ah, and on that happy note, you had us at hello. hello.